Welcome to Schneps Connects. I'm your host, Josh Schneps. We have a great episode here for you today. My guest is Dr. Brett Rudy. He's Senior Vice President and Chief of Hospital Operations at NYU Langone Hospital in Brooklyn. Dr. Rudy started his medical career as an adolescent medicine specialist. His focus was on HIV infection in adolescents and young adults in the early 1990s when there was a strong stigma surrounding HIV, even in children. He launched the first clinic at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia devoted to the care of children and adolescents with HIV and AIDS. In his current role, Dr. Rudy manages the healthcare at NYU Langone Hospital, Brooklyn, which is a 450 bed acute care teaching hospital, comprehensive stroke center, and level one trauma center. I can tell you as a Brooklyn resident, I know how important that hospital is to the borough. And I think we all have a new appreciation for our healthcare providers because of the current pandemic. So I'm thrilled to have you with us, Dr. Rudy, welcome. Thank you, Josh, it's really good to be here today. So you have an amazing background and thank you for all that uh, you have done and, and you do constantly to keep people healthy. Talk to us a little bit about your background and what led you into medicine and healthcare. You know, uh, it goes way back. I mean, I was always interested in science and I think when I was young, um, I always thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I had an older brother who was going into medicine. I think he was a big influence. But I will say during college, like most college kids, I questioned whether is that the right field for me? Is this where I wanna go? Do I wanna set a different path? And so I, I explored different options. And uh, I honestly, to be quite honest with you, I said, let me look at graduate programs. Let me look at medical schools. I applied to medical school. I was very fortunate to get in right away. And I just felt that it was kind of meant to be. And then I went to the University of Pittsburgh for medical school and then went to Chokes Hospital of Philadelphia and Penn for my residency and fellowship training where I was on faculty for a number of years until 2009 when I uh, came to NYU. So my uh, path in, in medicine has been what I would call a bit more of a, a classical, until I took this job, a bit more of a classical trajectory in terms of a real focus for clinical care, an area of clinical research, um, and also a lot of advocacy that happened um, over the course of the years to really influence both local, state, and national policy as it related to teenagers and HIV. Well, it's, you know, it's great work. I know I mentioned it briefly, but, you know, you did extensive work during the AIDS epidemic at the height of the crisis. So what would you say were some of the lessons learned then and some similarities to the current pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, there were some really quite, quite honestly, some pretty uh, clear similarities between the two. I mean, we knew that they were both you know, uh, caused by viruses, but really at the beginning of both of these pandemics, we did not have uh, adequate treatment uh, for either of them. And so it was all supportive care. And if you really think back on it in the early HIV epidemic, we didn't even know, it took us a number of years to identify the retrovirus and then to actually develop uh, testing mechanisms for it. And uh, we, you know, for young children, you know, children that were born and were infected, we, early on in the epidemic, we treated them symptomatically because we didn't have the technology to, to uh, 
be 100% certain that they had HIV infection until they were about two years of age. Now that technology all changed over the years and obviously antiretroviral therapy has really uh, turned HIV into a chronic disease as to what was a acute life-threatening disease. So, you know, but there was a lot of stigma around it. There was a lot of uh, misinformation about HIV that was out there in the early uh, part of the pandemic. And certainly we saw similarities with COVID. We were not sure how it was gonna affect the population. We did not uh, necessarily know which populations would be most gravely affected. We thought we had some sense, but we learned very, very quickly. We learned how to take care of those patients um, as we were caring for them, what worked, what didn't work. We were, both of these pandemics were really reliant on good clinical research mm -hmm. to find uh, the best strategies for, for testing and treating uh, uh, and hopefully preventing um, infection with both of them. So it seems like forever that we've been in the current pandemic, but I guess when you really look at it from a timeline, I mean, to come out with a vaccine in less than a year, how does that compare to the experience with HIV and AIDS being able to, to find really um, quality care for, for people suffering? So, you know, for HIV and AIDS, we had uh, greater success with antiretroviral therapy than we have had with vaccines. And um, not that there has not been a boatload of vaccine research that has happened and many different technologies have been tried to prevent HIV, but none have proven to be particularly successful. On the flip side, treatment with really good combination antiretroviral therapy, again, really has altered the trajectory. And most people with HIV now live a normal life and a normal lifespan. The other thing that I think we will, so I'm, you know, that we will see is with HIV is we also know that giving antiretroviral therapy as prophylaxis can have a significant benefit in preventing infection if someone uh, has sex with someone who is infected with HIV. Very similar to, so, you know, for COVID, it's gone a bit in the opposite, in a little, little bit different path. We got a vaccine before we have really great anti antivirals. We do have remdesivir, which is helpful, um, and we know better how to treat it. But the vaccine, I think, has been remarkable and was really built on the fact that all these technologies have been under development for a decade. And these companies and academic institutions were able to build on that very, very quickly. And also remember, we were in the middle of a pandemic that was, that was you know, throughout the world. So we were able to enroll patients quickly into trials and very quickly understand whether the vaccine prevented folks from getting infected or prevented them from getting sick um, from infection with, with uh, COVID. So the vaccines have rolled out quickly. You know, there's millions of doses being given out throughout the world. Uh, what do you say to the people that are hesitant to take a, a vaccine, particularly the ones for COVID? You know, uh, so, you know, I, I, there sadly is a lot of uh, vaccine hesitancy out there um, among some individuals for many different vaccines, but for COVID in particular. And what I would tell them is that there are some fallacies policies out there that we really need uh, to correct. The first one is, is that this was rushed. 
um, the technologies were under development for years. We were just able to use those technologies and found them to be effective. Number two, these studies have what's called power, meaning you have to enroll a certain number of people and you have to have a certain number of infections before you're able to say, is there a difference between the two groups? Mm -hmm. Part of the reason that the studies were able to be conclusive so quickly was just because of the prevalence of infection uh, and the chances of getting infected in the community. So the FDA would never have approved uh, emergency use unless the safety was there and the efficacy was there. So we are uh, really, really, really lucky that we had so many vaccines uh, that were ready to go so quickly. What would you say are some of the largest lessons learned, not, not just by doctors, but, but hospital systems over the past year? So, you know, I think, you know, this sounds maybe cliche-ish, but it is 100% true, is that to get through this, you know, these were unprecedented times in terms of the number of patients that were coming into the hospital critically ill, um, you know, trying to protect staff, trying to protect visitors, trying to protect patients. Um, the, but the, the need for everyone to work in a coordinated, cohesive manner to care for these patients, develop, to develop the and use technology that helped us stay in contact with families to keep them updated about their loved ones, because this really put, you know, upended our usual strategy of bringing families to the bedside, um, work, you know, uh, you know, educating them, talking to them, having them be a support person for the patient. You know, we were not able to do that during the, the height of this pandemic. And so I think it really required everyone in the healthcare to really look at the patient, understand what the needs were, and really have to take a very holistic approach um, to, to caring for patients. I think it reminded us why we do what we do. Sure. And I think it remind the public how they should appreciate the healthcare providers as much as uh, possible. You know, I think that the one thing that it, that was, uh, I, I would say, not surprising, but is always uh, remarkable, um, and I've worked in healthcare for many, many years now, is when crisis calls, healthcare providers step up to the plate. There was you know, the emergency department, the ICUs, people who were normally, you know, the surgeons who were not doing surgery, everyone contributed, every person. And if there were people who, because of medical conditions or age, could not come to the hospital, they were working and helping us call families and keep them connected. Everyone contributed, no matter what their role, in a really significant way. Again, regardless of their uh, regardless of their position, yeah, it was it was a team effort. There's been a lot of talk about people not going in to see their doctors or the hospital because of fear of you know contracting the virus. What would you say in terms of encouraging people to seek care, um, you know, at this time particularly in New York? Josh, that's a really good question, and I thank you for asking it because. You know, like any uh, crisis, as you come out of it, there are also always some unintended uh, negative consequences. And with, with, with COVID, there was a lot of fear and people who really needed and delayed care. And what I would say to folks now is we have done, an, I, I think the healthcare systems across the US have done an incredible job 
of using PPE correctly, uh, protecting staff and protecting patients. So I honestly think the hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices are some of the best, uh, safest places where you can be because we do know how to prevent this and wear masks, wear PPE with people who are infected, face shields where appropriate, wash your hands frequently, and, and you just have to look at, for example, what it's done to flu. We're seeing very little flu this year. Mm. And that's because people are taking these precautions seriously. I mean, it's remarkable. But, but use that as a, a good indication that, that, the, that PPE masks work. With the numbers you know, coming off the highs, particularly in New York City, I think around the country as well, um, and the vaccines being rolled out. What, what other advice do you give the general public as far as you know, coming into late winter and spring? You know, I think that the, this, this, this pandemic, and you, Josh, you know this, you've seen, everyone has experienced it. This was, you know, it affected your work life, it affected your personal life, it affected your family life. So uh, I think, you know, yeah, I can talk about folks that work here in the hospital. I don't think that anyone who was, you know, working here did not have, everyone had their personal lives impacted by this. Um, and I think that there is a natural tendency for all of us to say, okay, it's tired. I want to see people. I want to get out there. I think we just have to be cautious. You know, it, it is with vaccine rolling out. That's great. Um, I think it will give great protection. I think that the plans and, you know, the, that the, the federal government and states have to really expand getting vaccine out there are going to be beneficial, but it's still going to be important for us to socially distance, use masks, wash our hands, you know, uh, be careful, not only, you know, out in public, but be careful in your own home. If someone is sick, try to isolate them. Um, you know, we had a period at early on in the second wave where we're really seeing a lot of spread within households. Mm. And that's particularly hard for some populations where, you know, you don't have a corner of a house that you can self-isolate in. So that, that, is, that is the challenge that we have. Dr. Rui, last question for you, because I know you've taken valuable time out to be with us on the podcast, but as a father of two young children and and you as a doctor that serve children and adolescents, what do you think is gonna be the future for um, protecting children um, against the uh, COVID? So, you know, we, interestingly, children have not been the population that have been most vulnerable. There will be vaccine studies and there are ongoing vaccine studies in children. And I think it will become part of the vaccination series uh, for those populations as well. In general, children actually respond just as well, if not better to vaccines. But because, you know, when you, when you test things for children, generally if it's a disease that occurs in children and adults, we usually test it in adults first to make sure it's both effective and also equally as importantly safe. Obviously, if there are illnesses that just affect children, um, then we have to test those. So in HIV, for example, we always did studies in adults before we did them in children to make sure that the safety was there because some of the safety indicators. So I, I would say that um, for, for young children, 
Um, I think that there will be vaccine data coming out in the not too distant future, and then families can make decisions together with uh, uh, their pediatricians about whether it's uh, uh, appropriate for, for their children. Yeah, I mean, I think that'll become bigger and bigger issue as parents get vaccinated, but they still want to make sure their children are protected. Absolutely. To travel or school or anything else. Right, right. And, you know, there's been a lot of focus on schools and uh, the fact that schools can be made safe, uh, but obviously putting vaccines on top of that will make them even safer. And, and, you know, we have to look out for that vulnerable population because, you know, some children will learn much better in group settings where they're working with other kids. There's a social connection to it. So I understand parents' concern and as a pediatrician, understand their concerns for wanting to get their kids back into school and back into a routine. Um, and plus it's tough on parents to be the parents and to be the educators as well. Well, Dr. Rudy, I thank you so much for being with us on Schneps Connects and thank you for all your work and everyone at NYU Langone for taking care of uh, this city in such a critical time. Well, well thank you, Josh. And uh, thank you for you and your team of keeping the public uh, informed because good information, correct information is a really powerful tool, especially when at times like this. So thank you. Thank you. Take care. You will. Make sure to check out our new episode of Schneps Connects wherever you get your podcasts or stream us online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com. <laughs>